find that to be true or not so, or did you find my claims to be outrageous? Or did you see something of Christ? Maybe a little, you know, when he knew that he had to die and he was arguing. Solemn there. You know, he knew he had to do it. Don't make me change my mind. Yeah. And I think that's why he was. Oh, arguing. with Priam. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there was something about incarnation in there mm -hmm. where it wasn't in, in the world of ideas. It was I'm going to give him a body because my friend gave his body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's something that's really incarnational. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Um, Gnostics wouldn't see that. I mean, the bodies, they fight over Patroclus' body and the armor, and people are fighting. The bodies are. And, and the interesting, in an amazing way, it indirectly occurred something like that. You know, I, I have not gone there, but and I've just not thought about this a long time. When Achilles has that dream of Patroclus and Patroclus comes to him, his first response is to embrace him, and his arms go through him in shock. And then he says, all, there's this life but no body to it. And it's a way of, that Homer has of showing us that one of the things that distinguishes this life from the next life, in the afterlife, is the body. So indirectly, even though it's mutilated, page after page after page, it is the one thing that keeps people in life. Without the body, you're, in, in the underworld, you're a gibbering iterate. People cannot, in some sense, cannot communicate. So the body is the source of who we are as humans. It, it's, it makes us, Hector's wanting to be like a god, is, is in a sense half a denial of the body. He doesn't fully accept his, human, his humanity in the body. Um, so indirectly, I mean, I, I wouldn't call it, I mean, it's, it's sort of amazing. I wouldn't go out of my way to say it's incarnational, but in, in one sense it really is. You know, it's not, it, we, don't, we don't look at the book that way because it's pagan. Mm -hmm. But when you think about what's going on, the body, it's absolutely central to everything that happens, so. My one thought is that I wonder if Homer oh, sorry. did not know about, he was such a learned man, he would have known about the Jewish people and their belief in one God, and that he would have been interested in learning about that, and he would have, and the fact that they were waiting for a Messiah, for someone to come, and yeah. he would not have built that kind of feeling into what he wrote. Yeah. Um, I'm not a scholar. I'm not that kind of person. Um, but what I do know from scholars, um, is that what you're talking about? I think is a little is a little bit premature. Um, there's there's um, serious questions among scholars whether Plato didn't read some of the Jewish scriptures and whether Virgil and my own reading of Plato and Virgil support that. I mean, I, it's hard for me to read Plato and Virgil, particularly those two, and not feel that they haven't in their travels or the way some literary pieces, sacred texts get around, whether they didn't 
have access to some of those because it's more evident in there. In you can point to things in that passage that I pointed to in the Republic. Remember where Plato said, "In order to find the just man, we have to strip him of all seeming. He has to be scourged and whipped and crucified." Um, that sounds like one of the Psalms that we read about the just man and wanting to crucify him. And so, and so when you read, when I read that, I wonder. I have that same question, and it, for me, it's hard to believe that the wisdom literature didn't get around. But the, to, to have a strong sense of a Messiah coming at 800 BC seems a little bit early. But you, it's a question you have to ask because he's so, he, he, he sees so much, Homer does. Um, and you and I wonder, you know, we don't we don't know, but it's certainly. I mean, you would you would ask that question, or it seems to me, how can you not ask it? Because he, he they were so he was so learned, he would have been interested in everything that was out there. Yeah, it's interesting too because learned is so different than from what it is today. You know, Virgil, Virgil's a more learned man. Homer's a primitive poet. I mean, there's almost no sense of book learning. But when, you, when we get to Virgil, after the, you're going you're gonna to find you're in a literary world. When you read Homer, you're in the, in the world of an oral tradition where it's a different kind of... It's closer to a primitive wisdom than what we would call learning. So you know, maybe he was inspired. I mean, that's my take on Homer, because he's, he doesn't have a lot around him. It's an oral tradition, and he's more isolated. Virgil belongs to a much more complicated cosmopolitan world, and so does Plato. But that's 500 years later. You know, Homer, the amazing thing about Homer is that he did this with so little around him. You know, it's just amazing. He did find it. <laughs> thanks, thanks. You're welcome. Thanks. I don't know how to do this talk, but when the light starts, I think that turns it on, and then when you when you press it in, and the light blinks, it's not recording. Then when you blink it again, like I just oh there, give it a minute, and then hit that, and then um, press it, it'll blink, and then when you press it again, it should stop, and when it stops, the light is steady. Yeah, now just hit it, it should stop, and just hold. There, I think it's working. Well, it's good to see you all again, and I'm glad there are men. <laughs> I have to make apologies because it was grumbling earlier and saying, "Where are the men? The, the men need to be here." Because I was saying to the women um, that I think men typically look at poetry as if it's a um, feminine, unmasculine thing or something, and and I hope everybody sees that if you read Homer he, and with Achilles, he's looking at something so entirely masculine, so, so deeply in a way that's, um, you know, that goes to something in our male nature. But, you know, I'm glad you're all here. I'm glad. What's your name? Casey. Casey. Casey, glad you're here. You got a book? Yes. And everybody's got the materials, yeah, the new poems. Did I get them done?
Let's start. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, particularly in Mass. Um, strengthen us with your grace that we can make you present, join you in your work to make your kingdom here, make it present in all we do, alone and together. I ask a blessing on, um, on our endeavor, the, sh the shared work we do here. Help us to be open to you, to move with you, to trust in you, to have quiet hearts, particularly where um, trusting hearts where we face difficulties. I ask a blessing on all of us. Help us to grow closer to you, more one with you in your love and your truth, your goodness, your justice, your mercy, all of you, in all that we do in our lives. Amen. I didn't get anything on the board because I was talking too much. Um, I'm going to have to wing a lot tonight, I think. Um, I tell you what, let's read. I wasn't sure which I would read tonight. The, the Carnation poem or the, the, the Blake poems. Let's read Supernatural Love. This is a poem by a contemporary American. Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. I think it's Gertrude or Gertrude Schneckenberg. Um, um, I'm just, as you know, I, I don't want to go into these, but um, um, some of these poems really need more commentary than I'm giving them, but I'm going to have to leave it there and trust that you'll go back and read it yourselves. Thanks. Um, it's a poem about a young, well, it's about a woman older looking back at a moment in her childhood with her father. It's a wonderful poem about fatherhood in some sense and some ironies involved in fatherhood. She looks back at a moment when she was four years old and her father was puzzling why she would um, keep identifying carnations as Christ's flowers. <laughs> It's about the Incarnation. How is that for an irony tonight? Because um, you were saying that it was an incarnational poem. God bless you. What an amazing thing. Here, um, So many of the poems that we've been reading, interestingly, are incarnate. The Wind Hover, Dragonflies, Words, you know, um, Joyous Words. All of them are about the way words incarnate things to give bodies to the spirit. Um, the poem's full of ironies. I, I don't think the father sees. He seems to be a scholar kind of man who is in his head, wanting to know things. And she's four years old, and she seems to have an intuitive grasp of something the way four years old, without understanding, without having a clue what it all means. She may have heard something. She may just be putting the sounds together, the incarnation, or incarnations so that she associates carnations with um, Christ. The word carnation um, means 
flesh-colored, pink. That's what the word means. So the word incarnation means just that, in, in fleshing something, in fleshing the spirit is what it means for us. Um, and I think what happens in the poem is this. She looks back as an older woman and realizes that what she experienced as a child, even if she didn't consciously know it, was an identification with Christ in the crucifixion, in giving his love. So here, like the wind hover, when, when Hopkins sees the bird hovering, and, you know, and, and reaching that moment where his span holds him and there's that mastery, and then the buckling, the collapse, and, and the paradoxical use of that. In the same way, she sees in this moment, as a four-year-old, some participation in a mystery with Christ. So if I can leave it there, let me just leave it there and I'll read it and hope that you'll go back and look at it yourself because it's a beautiful poem. Supernatural Love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamplit answer, tilting his hand, his slowly scanning, magnifying lens, a blurry, glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, an ironic image of him, <coughs> distorted, that capturing something in him. So near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant, plucked, infinitesimal string, the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye. Remember the parable of the needle and the camel again? My father through the needle's eye is through a lens ground for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed as this study's gloom where as a scholar bends above a tomb As a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there, he bends to pour over the Latin blossom. I am four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor, trying to stitch, beloved, X by X. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but because. Word roots blossom in speechless messages, the way the thread behind my sampler does, where following each X, I awkward move my needle through the word, whose root is love. He reads, a pink variety of clove, carnaccio, the Latin meaning, flesh. As if the bud's essential oils brush Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron-fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret bitter ecstasy. The stems squeak in my scissors. Child, it's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud. The clove, a spice, dried from a flower bud. Then twice, as if he hasn't understood, he reads, 
from the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, flesh and nail, <coughs> twist my threads like stems into a knot, and smooth beloved. But my needle caught within the threads, thy blood so dearly bought. The needle strikes my finger to the bone, I lift my hand, it is myself I've sown, the flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnations <coughs> bloom from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ's when I was four. Right? Put all those things together, nail, the needle pricking her, the blood, the blood on the, the thread, the carnation, the father, the, the words tomb, is he in a tomb, you know, in his life? Um, anyway, put those together for this moment. She's looking back at four, and I think, and finding that she's participating in the Christ moment with her dad, and I have the sense of the, there are ironies everywhere, that he has no sense of what's going on in this. But Any quick thoughts? I've often heard that the carnation is the flower that is mostly sent at funerals, death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think the smell reminds you. Yeah. That connection with what happens after death comes to my mind. The word cleave occurred to me that you know Adam and Eve cleaving together. With a clove? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it has any connection, yeah. but nailing together, cleaving, like the family. Or the cross cleaving. too, the I mean cross. particularly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let me leave it, because I really don't wanna I wanna try to hold to a principle. I'm just trying to introduce poetry to you in the hopes that you will see <laughs> my task here is to try to suggest and try to work to, to help us all become aware, particularly in our modern world, that, that Christ is everywhere around us and poets help us to see him. So. Okay, let's, let's start. Um, um, remember, for the next um, four meetings, we will be doing the Odyssey, books one through six today, and six books every week. And so it, does, it means we don't have a lot of time to spend on each of the six books, but I'm going to try to cover them in, in a way that at least gets to the heart of the stuff. And, and I'm trusting that, um, that this will read so much more easily than the Iliad, and you'll find it easier to get through. And, but I have this challenge to put to all of you, because I think I'm going to maybe begin each class before the poem in asking you any sense of intimations of what we know in our Christian faith. What, one of the assumptions behind what I'm doing in this class is that, un, unlike the Protestant world or the Islamic world, we believe in a logos in nature, that nature is rational, and that one of 
one of the things that sets us off traditionally from other groups is our belief that reason and faith go together. Um, Pope, John's Paul, um, Pope John Paul's um, encyclical Fide Ratio, Faith and Reason, is to me one of the best documents of our modern world. It was John Paul who wrote that and encouraged us to do all that we could to bring faith and reason together. That we should find support for, we should find our faith strengthened by the natural order. It should enrich it, fill it flesh it out, incarnate it. But in the modern world, particularly in a Protestant America, um, we've lost our way into the natural world. Nature isn't full of the logos anymore. Christ isn't there. It's, it's horrors. You know, it, it, according to the Protestant mind, it's depraved. Nature's gone. The scientific mind won't find the logos there, even though there's intelligibility every, everywhere. So, um, one of the questions I just want to um, encourage you to be thinking about each week in your reading is, what is this logos? Where, where, where am I finding it in my reading? What is Homer, what do, I, what do I learn from this ancient view of nature and the world and the gods that's different from our modern views? Um, what have we lost? Um, in what ways does it support our faith? In what ways may it mm, trip it up? You know, I, don't, I don't know, but it's, it's an important question to ask, so if you would just keep that in your mind as you're reading. I think I'm going to try to spend a few minutes before our classes asking you what you're, what you're finding, how you're finding them. Okay, over the last four weeks I've made several claims that lots of people would find preposterous. I can't imagine how you received my first claims when we started. The first one was that ancient literature offers us a clear foreshadowing of Christ. According to John, Christ was the means of creation. Since he was, I assumed we should be able to find traces of him everywhere in creation. I asked the question, if signs of him existed before Christ actually came, before the incarnation, what were they? Did God create his people and just abandon him? From the Jews we know that he didn't. The, the Greeks weren't privy to that wisdom. Was he not present? Um, if he was present, in what way? And if not him, what about the Holy Spirit? In a world that didn't know Christ yet, was he not at work? Was God not at work? Did he abandon his people, his children? If he was, if he was present, wouldn't we find him where we'd most expect, where a man most struggled to be good, to love or be just against himself and against those forces which threatened to rob him and others of his humanity. Those very qualities gave men when he created them in his image. I would assume if we were going to find him anywhere, we'd find him there. Or not at all. In our last class on the Iliad, I suggested that we actually do find intimations of Christ in Achilles. His heightened sense of justice or right his acts of self-denial, his willingness to give up his life for another, the generosity he shows his men during the funeral games, and finally, a spirit approaching charity and mercy that he shows Priam in their meeting. In a moment, I'm going to suggest one more in a moment. I'm not, I hope I'm not being misunderstood here. I am not suggesting he's Christ. Christ is God. 
what I'm looking for are signs of Christ in human beings when Christ wasn't around. Um, it should help us understand who we are as humans more fully, if we can see that. And um, so he was killing men right and left. Christ never did. He dragged Hector's body around. Um, and I, and my, my response to that, I don't know if I've made it in this book, remember in the embassy scene, Aias, who was the last man to say to him, um, you have no pity in your heart. Other men, when they get gifts, settle their accounts. And Achilles wouldn't. And, and we didn't have a chance to go into that much, but my response to that was, that's an indication that his sense of justice is higher than the one operating the honor code at that time. Because at that time, you did something, you got bought off. The whole, the whole point of this book is, he stepped outside of that when he said, you cannot take booty away. Because in some, he didn't know, he was not conscious of what he was doing, but what he's doing is reacting against a disorder in the honor code that human beings can be paid for. That somehow our human worth can be reduced to possessions. The book in every way is claiming that that, that can't be. There's something in us that can't be measured in material terms. St. Thomas says that. The human soul is worth more than an entire material universe. I hope that's obvious. Shakespeare makes that clear. Dante makes that clear. So um, his sense of justice wasn't confined to the world's view of what justice was. When he drags Hector's body around for nine days, 12 days, what was it? And the gods come. The gods only come to him not because he did it at all, but because he went too far. So there's an eye for an eye mentality operating. Justice means you do this, you get this. It was only when he exceeded some point, nine days, that the gods said, enough. Now you're going too far. So in Achilles, there's a sense that there's something more. That the whole book is trying to answer this. What I'm suggesting is this changed sense of kleos, this this honor as having a, a, a transcendent element, a quality to it that distinguishes it from the honor that, um, that most men live by. That was my first claim. I also claimed that along with Genesis and, and, Genesis and Exodus, the Iliad um, should be seen as the founding work of Western civilization. The Greek Hebraic um, traditions are the, are the founding blocks of Western civilization. The Roman world will enter shortly. But in the beginnings, it's Greek and Hebraic, a sense of something prophetic. The, 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 the most important forms of wisdom passed on to us from the ancient world was through the Hebraic, the Jewish sacred texts, and Homer and Virgil, the epic tradition. And I've showed you how they line up and the amazing correspondences they have with each other. This claim rests on a number of qualities of the poem. I mentioned two here. One is that it establishes the great theme of all epics, a founding or a refounding, a people coming to a new identity of itself through some great struggle or battle. Remember this. It's not just a refounding. For a people to be refounded means some change of a spiritual magnitude so great takes place 
that, it, that it's capable of changing a whole people, giving a people a new identity of itself. So this isn't just one person, although clearly it is here. We talked about the way it spilled over and effect, affected some of them. And the question that I raise is, can we measure it? Because do we know what the effect is on the people who read Homer well? So that the, the transformation that, taking, that takes place there may be carried out to his readers. So that a larger circle of people is being reformed. A, a refounding is taking place that we can't put on, that we can't identify as a single town, like Athens or Sparta or Ithaca. But a community is being formed, a people is being refounded. It's much closer to the New Jerusalem as Christ presents it, because we talked about that. Remember, the Jews keep expecting this city in Israel, in Jerusalem. And that isn't why Christ came. He's talking about another city. Plato in the Republic talks about another city. It's the city laid up in the soul of the man who wants it, like the disciples moving to Christ. So a refounding is a, is a, is a notion we, we have to think seriously about. It doesn't take the form of bricks and mortar, necessarily, or of a building going up. Something happens involving a person and people who identify with him. Um, and something happens in nature. We saw that when, re, when Achilles re-entered the war, that nature responded. It's, it, today, we think that nature is just inert matter. I'm going to try to put this a little bit more Thomistically. Um, if, if God is present, I'll make this clear later, but let me just offer a thought here. If, if God made nature and he's present in it as its creator, then we would expect some affinity between nature and man. When man does something in harmony with nature, nature cooperates. They are working together. When he does something in violation of nature, it will show, the effects will show. It's this thing about the, lo the logos that I keep talking about. So when he re-enters the war, nature's responsive. It's the way Homer shows that a human's not isolated in nature the way he is in the modern world. The modern world, man against the sky. We're the modern man sees himself as isolated against a meaningless, empty universe. Um, that's one of the ways. Um, a second major quality of the poem is that it leaves us with a heightened sense of man's grandeur by setting its hero above a city about to be destroyed. Um, it shows that a human being is worth, what happens to a human being is worth far more than things that are passing virtually. Um, I think that's one of the reasons Homer leaves us where he does. We, he doesn't show us the destruction of a city. How could he after showing, you know, all those passages that I read where the splendor, the light radiating in the sun, that something numinous is, is associated with what Achilles does. To, to, to go to the city being destroyed would detract from that. He's showing the glory that belongs to a human being. Um, as over against something that's about to happen. He doesn't show it to us. I just, I just think that's so appropriate for his vision. Insofar as the poem is about the tragic destruction of a city, it still affirms some greatness in man that raises him above his earthly condition and his mortality. 
It was the first work to depict an individual person in such a way as to show some transcendent ground to his nature, an inner spiritual universe making him capable of taking great risks, making choices, and growing in self-knowledge. From a cosmological perspective, the story deals with the passing away of an Eastern, tribal, dynastic way of life and the advent of those conditions that would produce the polis. That was a new regime. Aristotle, the roots of it here in Homer, Plato and Aristotle will make it clear. Dante will make it clear. And, and I've already, actually already hinted at this early. The modern commercial republic, America, has its roots in that notion. Freedom, a democracy, people self-governing, not by tribal instincts. So the roots of our beginnings are here. A new forms of government and authority based on a new view of man. Um, we're moving away from the enabling and its blinding effects. In Troy, you know that Priam and so many of the people enable their, their impulse to protect their family, the way families do, mothers and fathers want to protect their children. The way that impulse interferes with, um, I don't know how to put it, um, holding them accountable to something higher, a right, a wrong, um, that, that may cause suffering. All the things that the Achaeans quarrel about in their assemblies, in all the early assemblies that they have, that make them go to, to, to argue with each other. That way of life is giving way to something new. And at the heart of it is, is this change that takes place in Achilles. The poem showed that in the opening, that in opening himself to his inner, sorry, to this inner transcendent ground of his being, Man becomes capable of offering himself in a new and unexpected ways and with a power that spills over onto others, making them also capable of doing the same. And it did all of this not in concepts or abstractions, but in situations, human situations, so perfectly realized in their concrete detail, so rounded, so real, so convincing to our senses that we could have no difficulty identifying with them ourselves. We experienced it at ourselves as experience, because that's been one of my arguments. That's one of the kinds of knowledge poetry gives us. It's experience. It's not concepts. And my third and final claim was that um, it's the first work to establish poetry as one of the two primary sources of wisdom in the ancient world. That's a position that it held up until the Copernican Revolution in the 16th century, when science became the dominant view. And if you think about this, we, we can watch it happening. Um, poetry and sacred scripture were the two most important forms of learning up until that time. When the Copernican Revolution takes place and it overthrows everything, there's this, it's the Renaissance, it's a period of great upheaval and questioning and, and great goods that come out of it. But it's interesting to note that at that time, the poet gets pushed to the margin. In the modern world, it's not uncommon for poets to be committing suicide. Would have never happened in the ancient world. Because the poet, it's, he's like the prophet in the desert, the unheard voices crying from the desert. Chaucer, who's Femios in the Odyssey? Who's Femios? 
Opening books. Don't look, don't look, don't look. He's the herald. He's the singer. He's the one who does all the singings in the hall, yeah? What happens? When he starts singing, all the, what do they do today? Men gather, they start drink, drink, drinking and dancing and carousing and destroying things. That's how powerful poetry and music is. He sits in the middle of an assembly singing, and everybody listens. When Odysseus goes to Phaeacia, what's he going to do? He's going to sit down in the middle of a hall, and he becomes a bard, like Homer. And he tells his story. And Demodocus, who's the Phaeacian bard, does the same. So in all of these communities, he's like a priest, a vates, the prophet. He's the one who shows a people itself through stories. So the poet is, was always at the center of his community. In the modern world, that poetic voice has been pushed to the margins and isolated him. So that kind of knowledge is less and less familiar to us. That's why I'm a little bit amazed that you guys are here <laughs> and still standing. Um, now, one last, one last claim I want to make here. That, that this has just come to me because I haven't been, I haven't been reading Homer in years now because of the other work I'm doing. But you know, I've talked to you about Bak the importance of this Russian formalist Bakhtin and his the writing he's done and the important contributions he's made in helping us to understand literature, narrative, particularly narrative. And his claim that in the epic we move back into an idealized world closed off from the present. Um, you enter in through mimosine, memory, Calliope, the god, the muse of epic poetry. It's mimosine. It's one of the daughters of mimosine, memory, this cosmic memory. You go back into the past. Um, I've got to write something on this because it, to me, it amazes me. But let me throw this forward as a as another proposition for the epic and see what you think as we go along. If the epic starts in this world, it goes back to this past, I'm going to argue or claim right now, you're welcome to argue this because it's just come to me and see what you think, but that what Homer is doing in both books is, is bringing his hero into the present through the action of the poem. And we see that in a number of ways. The most obvious way we see that is at the end of the Iliad, Achilles is no longer bound by that honor code. He no longer lives in the past. He doesn't do things the way people did at the beginning of the book. And we know that because he sets off from, he set off from even the men themselves in the funeral games when they all start quarreling. He's settling it. He's bringing something new that doesn't belong to the past anymore. That's why I said it's, it's about a refounding, the recreation, a new spirit introduced into a people, reforming them. What he does with Priam is amazing. Who does that? Who did that before? N nobody in the book that we know of. And even Priam himself doesn't see it. That's one of my arguments. When Priam says, take your booty and go home, and Achilles gets angry again, because he knows he can't do that. He has a destiny. to. He has to die for this to happen. So in an amazing way, he has stepped out of that world into a present. And I'm going to say he's more Christ-like then, in those moments, because he lives more fully in the present. So I think Bakhtin is mistaken in some ways, that he's not seeing something. 
When we get to the Odyssey, I'm going to make the same argument. Uh, this is looking ahead. I'm giving something away. I hate doing it. But let me just put it this way. Something is going to happen with Odysseus and Penelope as a husband and wife that we don't see in any other married couple in the book. And I'm going to touch on this tonight when, we, when I look at the homes. Something's going to happen with them that we don't see in any other married couple. So that Homer's doing with marriage in the Odyssey what he's doing with the honor code in the Iliad. He's bringing us into a present that's radically set apart from the past as men do it. Because what, when, we, when he goes to Pylos and Sparta, for those of you who've read, what's the greatest preoccupation of the men in those towns? Nestor and Menelaus. They're living in the past. All they can do is talk about the stories of what happened in Troy, the suffering, the wounds, the, the losses. Nestor grieves over his son. They can't get out of the... What does what is, what is Christ ask us to do? Heart stuff. To live in the past? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No matter what the grief is, how great it is. We cannot. Where's Homer in that? I mean, it's amazing what he's doing. Just amazing. So in some way, the epic as a genre, as distinct from the novel, even though it begins in the past, I'm going to say that Homer's great vision partly understood that. But what he was doing with his work was anticipating Christ in exactly that way, bringing us into something new that wasn't there before, that represents a break from the honor code in the Iliad, and that represents a break from conventional marriages as we see it in in the work we're doing now. All this men you can't get rid of thinking about that. Today we would say they have post-traumatic stress yes. disorder. Absolutely. Not a question. Not a question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean we watch movies, we've just seen them and I'm, I'm I mean I can't wa I can't watch them without being aware of that and being aware of Homer and the classical Christian tradition and what it asks and the, the Two different worldviews that are in tension over that question, but um, I guess uh, in thinking I was trying to absorb all what you're saying here tonight. With regard to, like I said, this being the, I guess the initial uh, expression of uh, Western civilization that's captured in in these particular uh, documents that. Epics, poems. Poems, okay. Then Homer is Not documents, poems. Okay, well, I'm going to war on this. In your world, yes. In my world, they're documents. Our world. <laughs> Our world. But I'm going to what war. I have, what, I have, what I have, what I have, what I have, I have difficulty coming to grips with in some degree. And I mean, is, I mean, I, one in terms of even that world with regard to here's a Jewish religion, here's a religion that, or not a religion, but a, uh, a, I guess faith or trying to put an understanding with regard to incorporating gods and other things to explain whatever is happening in their world. At the same time, the rest of the world, I mean, we're focused on that piece of the world, and yet there is the rest of the world in Asia and the like that where there is in fact religions and, and, and faith and literature, does that, I mean, I'm not scholarly enough to basically even begin to say, I mean, I've read some things of ancient religions and, and the like, is that same expression of what we're saying here applicable to 
to what is written in those other languages and other the other history. I mean, are they are they do they have some essence which also makes those kind of sayings prophetic? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it's a. I mean, it's it's just something that just being I I, I it was, again it's my mind because when you know you when you try to get me to focus on one thing I'm sort of saying well that's really still bigger than there's these other things yeah. doing the same thing at the same right. time right. Exactly. let me well let me if I can yeah, uh, I, your, I, your question is way beyond the scope of what we're doing no, here I, oh, I understand but no, let I, me I, let me just touch on it yes, really I, briefly and then go back because it's so much larger than what we're saying yeah. to do here. It's too big to answer in any yeah. adequate way. Yeah. There, there are clearly um, shared grounds mm -hmm. in all of these things and there's and there's areas where the ground isn't shared in radical ways. Because mm -hmm. none of the other religion Christianity is sui generis. It's it's not like anything else. It's no other, no other religion claims that that God came down and took on the form of man and did what he did to answer. So that the whole Jewish tradition prepares for this Christianity. So it's to, to group it the way people do and say it's one among is in, in, in a fundamental way dishonest. It's, it's, it, you, you can't say that. Um, but at the same time, you can say that there's a lot going on in all these other religions that show that men are struggling with the same sorts of things. I would argue right now, and I don't, I don't want to get into it because I, or let me not, no, let me not make it an argument. Let me just say that, according to my understanding of all of them, and I've, and I've read them, Hindu and Buddha and right. Islam. I've read the Quran. I know, I know those. So, but um, there are, there, there's a common ground we share with people all over the world. But in an amazing way, in the same way that the Jews prepare for Christ for something that's unlike anything else going on in the world, something happens in Greece that's parallel to that, that isn't happening any other way, and that is compatible, consonant with what Christianity does, this whole notion of the Logos that I've been struggling with. You won't find that in Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. So that in fundamental ways, there's a radical departure between what's going on here and what's going on elsewhere. And my concern here is not to do, you know, work on world religions. That's for somebody else. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. My task when I when I said it to myself for this group was to try to help people see that Christ is more present in nature as we know it um, than most people are aware of today, in a way that hopefully would strengthen your faith our faith together. Beyond that, I can't go, because it's not my purpose. Um, so let me, if I can, leave it there. It's there, yeah, for sure. I mean, what you're talking about is clearly there. Um, okay, I meant, sorry, I meant to get this on the board. What are the themes of this work? Most of the themes are, the great themes are announced in the invocation again, as they were in the Iliad, and we're gonna, I'm going to go through the, um, the, the opening with you in a minute. The most important is this notion of a homecoming. Anosnos. Remember I gave you the, 
this is fundamentally about economia, economics, econo, econo, the house, nomia, law, nomos, the rule of the household, the rule of the household, that there is a rule, an order, as in the Iliad, there is this norm, there are these norms in nature, things that we can do, that the Greeks saw, that there is this rationality to nature that we can learn from. If God is there and, and we're made in his image, there would be some compatibility. We've lost our way into that world, particularly in a Protestant America. Nature is blighted. You go to the movie today and 95% of the movies are horror stories. Nature's depraved. It's not so. Um, there's a rule, a norm. We can learn, and what we learn can help guide us in our struggles as humans to become better human beings. So, nostos, a homecoming, and the whole question of rule in the household. And at the center of this homecoming is a marriage. Now remember, both of these issues, home and a marriage, were at, were at the root causes of the Trojan War. So the book that we just read implied both of these. A marriage was violated, a home was violated. Now we're going back to that precondition to look at homes, to, and not just homes, but homes under, that are suffering from the disorders set in motion by the war. The, the post-disorder, the, the post-traumatic stress things that happen as a result of war. And think about this, just I mean in light of, Marcelo, what you said. Odysseus doesn't get home for 10 years. I don't think that's an accident. What man can be in a violent war for 10 year war, killing people every day and go home and lie in bed with his wife and everything will be nice? It's not happening here. Did Homer not know about this? He clearly he knew it, clearly he knew it. The first thing that Odysseus does when he leaves Troy is sack a city. His first adventure, what else could he do? If he'd been killing people for 10 years, plundering, so he's so aware. I mean, this is we're, the overlay between that world and ours is so much greater than most people know. A marriage between a man and a woman. Um, the cities of men. Odysseus is a man of many minds and many cities he visits. And what we're going to learn through his adventures are the different ways people construct cities and implicitly what's wrong with them. What's keeping them from being, attaining this nostos, this homecoming, this rule, this virtue or goodness that Odysseus will come to at the end of his life. His fools, his companions don't make it home. They don't come home. They don't make it home. Why? I'm going to talk about these a lot. One of the problems with these companions is a problem that runs through both the Iliad and the Odyssey, and it has to do with this. One of the great themes of the Odyssey is reading. People don't read well. You know, that's good. I hope that doesn't sound, probably sounds embarrassing, or I hope it's not condescending. I don't. I don't mean it that way. 
I've been teaching literature all my life. I flunked bonehead English. I don't know if I told you that. When I started, I flunked my first year of college. I was a pre-med major, should never have been a pre-med. I should not have been in medicine. I didn't belong in the sciences. Um, I, I was, a, anyway, I flunked. I had zoology and chemistry. I, I had no preparation for those. My mom thought I'd be a great doctor, and I went, I went to, I, I went to college to play basketball. <laughs> well, that's what I did then. Um, and flunked out at the end of my first year. In my fall semester and my spring semester, both, I flunked bonehead English. And I went on to be an English teacher. So, and I love, I mean, you know, I love language. I love language. I don't, I don't take reading lightly. Suzanne can read a book in two days. I, look, the book that she could read in two days, it will take me two weeks to read. I mean, I, I labor at reading. I'm not a fast reader. I'm not. I'm a very, very slow reader. I, I, I work at it. I have to. I have to work at this stuff hard. I don't read easily. One of the great themes running through all the literature that we read. If it was in the Iliad and Plessy, I'll get to it in a second. It's everywhere in the Odyssey. How well do people? How? What kind of a reader was Hector? How well did he read? Truly, I'm asking. Polydamus read bird signs constantly. He constantly was giving him advice to do things, said, if you do this. How well did he, how well did he listen? How well did Hector listen? Not at all. He was not a good reader. The suitors are going to be forced with, faced with omen signs. Men, mentees will come. Mentor will come. They will speak to the suitors. Do the suitors listen? By the way, you know what the root word of obedience is? The root word of obedience means to hear, to listen. How well do the, do the suitors listen? They do not. How well do they read? They do not. The fool, the, the word fool in Greek is napios. It means childlike, childlike, like a child, like somebody who can't read, who can't use language. This is going to be so important as we go along. If you're familiar with what happens in the cave of the Cyclops, I don't want to get there yet, but you know it's all about language. They can't read. We're, right now, we're readers of the Odyssey, trying to read together to see what's there. I hope it's clear. I mean, I, 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 know, I know from my own experiences, I'm assuming it was true for you. When we came across that passage in the ninth book and I said, such gifts are things I need not, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. When I read that to you guys, didn't most of you or all of you have a sense that it suddenly had a meaning that it didn't have before when you were reading it? Mm -hmm. I know from my own experiences, when teachers went over things and read them in class, suddenly, it's as if I'd been reading and missed something. And then we focused on it and realized I hadn't seen it. But so often we read things and our minds go over them. But unless something, it's like Helen Keller, unless something happens to connect words with something incarnated, it's like they stay in our heads. They don't mean what they're capable of. That's why I, that's why I read these poems every week. I'm hoping that you know, hearing them makes them mean a little bit more because I know how much that means to me. We don't read very well. 
Um, and the, the, the Odyssey is partly about the struggle to come home is so much contingent upon learning, reading. What's going to happen, this is going to be, by the way, this is a much easier read. True. I know that it, but what's going to happen in this work that never happened in the Iliad is that a whole metaphysical world of re, metaphysical realities underneath the world of appearances, we're back in that Plato cave image, a whole metaphysical world is going to come to life. Odysseus is going to have to deal with that world on his journeys before he can get home, before he can be reconciled with his wife, before he can have the marriage that's possible between a man and a woman. He will have to learn things about himself and women <laughs> other men don't know. So homecoming here doesn't mean just coming home to a roof and a door. It, it obviously means the way the Iliad did. There's a whole spiritual dimension of reality between a man and a woman, sexually, domestically, as a family, that comes into being when a man and a woman are perfectly reconciled in their marriage, what that means. So reading is crucial. The fools, his companions, don't get home. And you, and you notice through the book, whenever Homer gives that, it's always the last foot in the line. Fools at the very end of the line. You'll say that numerous times. Um, they constantly misread. They were not good readers. Um, which God is angry at Odysseus? Poseidon. Because Odysseus blinded his son, one of the Cyclops. And once again, and as a result of that, he's being punished and being kept on Calypso's island, where he's been for eight years. The book opens with Hermes going to help free him. Um, once again, we've entered into a world where the wounds of the past continue to haunt people. Telemachus cannot escape them, not in his own home, in the opening chapters, and when he goes to Sparta and Pylos, he, he enters two homes where the families are still living in the, in the grief and the wounds, the pains of the past. So, once again, as in the Iliad, we've entered a world where there are all these backstories, all these wounds, all these hurts that people bear that affect the way they're living. So coming home, if, if what I said a while ago is true, Coming home means coming into a present that in some way means a freeing from those past burdens. That Homer's showing us, as he did with Achilles, that there is a new spirit that man's capable of realizing under certain conditions, certain things like that. What are some of the disorders that plague people? Human responsibility is one of them. Constantly, the men in this book are blaming the gods for their problems, just like Agamemnon did. The suitors are constantly blaming the gods. Agistos, when he killed Agamemnon, I'll read that in a minute, blame the gods. Everybody blames the gods. Listen, just for a second, I, there's, it's amazing truth. As human beings, one of the things that we constantly face is that so often the consequences to our actions seem disproportionate to the actions themselves. Paris takes Helen, and suddenly we've got an epic. Yeah? Why, why an epic? I mean, people run off all the time. 
so often, if you've seen that movie um, Fargo, I'm, it's just a, <laughs> I love that movie. It, a guy does this innocent thing and he tries to embezzle somebody and, and, and the consequences from that snowboard, snowball horribly. People are butchered and killed and cut up and, you know, and the critics say it's a lousy movie because the consequences are so disproportionate to what set them in motion. Whenever I hear that line, I, I always think that critic doesn't know what he's talking about. If he understood the depths of evil in the human soul, he'd have no question about what happens. If any, if any of us looked at the depths of evil in ourselves and looked at our consequences, I think we'd be a little bit more patient about bearing them. But anyway, humans constantly blame the gods. Uh, they're not at fault. The old, another, old ways are dying out. The rights of hospitality are being violated, the suitors. The rights of marriage are being undermined everywhere. The ways of the father are being undermined everywhere. And one of the questions Homer's asking it because when Hector, when Menelaus goes to Pylos and Sparta, both people have made appropriate sacrifices. They're involved in rituals. And I think Homer's asking, and are the rituals enough? Pope Francis has been asking. Father James, again and again, keeps saying, is it enough to do rosaries? They're all saying, get out of the pews, go do something. Are rituals enough? The, the Trojans and Greeks, the Kinds, through the Iliad, kept, kept constantly making sacrifices. You know that. Were the answer? Most of the time, not. Sometimes, yes. But often, we would say, an Athena refused, or, you know, um, so much God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants a contrite heart. I and mean, that's one of the great things that runs through the Old Testament literature and that's at the heart of the New Testament. Um, absence of fathers. The fathers have been away for too long. The kids have grown up without the rule of a father. And finally, even the rule of a father wouldn't do it because there are lots of fathers on Ithaca but their sons are out of control. They need a, a good ruler, a good king. So Homer's showing us that even having a good father isn't enough. That you need, you, a family has to exist within a larger political structure with a good ruler. Who was it? Who's here, Trump? <laughs> was, who was the, I can't remember, or was it the other class, but that, we're facing that we're facing that same question ourselves today. Carter, uh, Clinton. Okay, okay. I can't. Um, we don't have time to go through uh, all of the uh, passages that I'd like to go through. This is just to get everything going, but I, but I do want to. But I want to try to cover some things to, to raise some questions for everybody.
let's read the beginning and then um, I want to be sure we're done by 25 after because I, I don't want to hold the wooden just here. Um, let's take a look at the invocation together. We're we're back where we were when we began when we began the Iliad. Um, remember, Mosine is the, the cosmic memory that Zeus makes with that produces the nine muses. These are the liberal arts. These are the basis for the liberal arts, actually, that went through the, the medieval um, education. Calliope, as you all know, is the muse of epic poetry. And Homer invokes her so that what we've got is this. If this is the world of men and gods, remember the gods are in nature. That's the amazing thing about Homer. That he doesn't have a sense of a transcendent God. The gods are of nature. Even though they're godly and divine, they're still in a natural world. But they're somehow, they're somehow of nature and beyond it at the same time. So from this divine order, a word is spoken. So a divine vision enters the world through the poet. And it allows us to look at the human condition in a different way than we could without it. So once again, he begins his poem. His song is not a document. It is, a, it is, a, it is an epic poem. Remember, it's put to music. It's got a, I, I'm sorry, I wish I could produce it, but I can't. Um, I can't. I wish, I wish I could, um, but um, it's, it's sung, and usually to a lyre, so it's put to music. So he says, tell me news of the man of many ways who was driven far journeys after he had sacked Troy's sacred citadel. Many were those whose cities he saw, whose minds he learned of, many of the pains he suffered in his spirit in the wide sea, struggling for his own life. You are really going to have to be patient with me. Sorry. The sea is everywhere around, and it is one of the great themes. Odysseus, man was not meant to be at sea. The great, the Odyssey is the great, Moby Dick is one of the great stories on that. Shakespeare is the Tempest. The sea has a strange meaning for us that I want to come to later, but just, just I don't want to forget it right here at the opening. Think about the sea as you're going through and the strange things that happen at sea. Many of the pains he suffered in his spirit in the wide sea, struggling for his own life and the homecoming of his companions. Even so, he could not save his companions, hard though he strove to. They were destroyed by their own wild recklessness, fools, that first foot, that's where it always appears, who devoured the oxen of Helios, the sun god, and he took away the day of their homecoming. From some point here, goddess, daughter of Zeus, speak and begin our story. It would be better if it said sing, because remember, it's sing, Goddess, the anger of Peleus' son. Um, 
Then all the others, as many as fled sheer destruction, were at home now, having escaped the sea and the fighting. This one alone, longing for his wife and his homecoming, was detained by the queenly nymph Calypso, bright among goddesses in her hollowed cabins, desiring that he should be her husband. It talks about Poseidon's anger and um, keeping him. And then we shift to Zeus, who's in a council with the other gods, who's talking about um, Agistos killing Agamemnon when he came home. Um, I think we have the same text. So, so from now on, I'm going to give you a page number and a line instead of books. So next page, 28. Meanwhile, the, at the very top, meanwhile, the other Olympian gods were gathered together in the halls of Zeus. First among them to speak was the father of gods and mortals, for he was thinking in his heart of stately Agistos. Look at the way Homer makes that easy transition. He does this with such ease. You know, we're at one place and he will get us to another. At, at, and at, at when, when Telemachus is leaving Sparta, we shift to the suitors again who are plotting to assassinate him. And he takes us there. And then we'll go to <coughs> Calypso's island. He moves so easily from one point to another. Whom Orestes, Agamemnon's far-famed son, had murdered. Remembering him, he spoke now before the immortals. Oh, for shame how the mortals put the blame upon us, gods, for they see evil comes from them. But it is they, rather, who by their own recklessness win sorrow beyond what, beyond what is given, out of proportion, consequences out of proportion, out of seeming proportion to their actions. That's why it's so easy to say, if we're blind and don't see the real nature of what we do, and the, the consequences seem excessive, we say it's fate or the gods, or, death, or somebody else, anybody but us. Um, Mentes comes and tells Telemachus that his father is probably trapped at sea and will be home on page 33. Um, in the middle of the page, about line 240, um, over and over again, Telemachus' response to any good news is pessimistic. He's a 19-year-old he's a kid who tends to see the world the way 19-year-olds do. Always pessimistic, always doubting, tends to be negative. Uh-oh. hope I'm not too close in age here. Not that, not, okay. not that young. Okay. But he's a young man. He's a young man. He's not old. And he tends to see things negatively. He says, fame for himself and his son hereafter, but now ingloriously the storms would have caught and carried him away out of sight. Nor is it for him alone that I grieve in pain now, no longer for the gods of Plague. He says if he died a hero man, he'd be okay, heroic man. But he's probably died at sea. So there's a little bit of egotism, you know, pride in him as a boy. If my dad had had a glorious, it would be one thing, but a shameful death at sea. So um, we get all these glimpses. Mentes tells him to go to Pylos and to Sparta, and um, on page 36, Phemios is singing, and Penelope comes out and says, stop this mournful singing about what happened in Troy. Once again, everybody, everybody is caught in that war. Nobody can escape it. And the first thing that Telemachus says, and it seems to me this happens right after Mentes arrived, is to tell his mother to go away, to let the singers play. It's an interesting moment. It's as if there are these glimpses where he can step forward to do what he should do is, I mean, he's the man of the house, his dad's not home here, but. So line 345, why my mother do you begrudge this excellent singer his pleasure himself? 
It must be Zeus is to blame who gives out men to down. There's nothing wrong in singing. Um, there's a cause to celebrate, to, con to continue to hold in memory those things that happened in the past. The suitors speak up um, against him on page 37, a third of the way down. Intinus is the first man. Remember, there's an order to everything. The fact that he's the first man to speak says, what about him? Hmm? Sorry. He's the highest ranking. Yeah, the leader. Um, which says, if Odysseus is going to fight these men at the end of the book, who should he take out first? This guy. And the next man to speak is Eurymachus, for line 400, then in turn Eurymachus spoke. The second in command. If you're going to take out anybody, it should be these two men. Uh, keep that in mind because watch what happens when Odysseus takes out the men. It's not an accident. Telemachus calls all the men into assembly and he shakes them with his words in book two. And the men are a little bit aghast. And then in the middle of page 43, Halis a prophet, gives a prophecy. Two eagles just pass across the sky and they fight against each other. Halis Thurnus reads it as a He's a reader. He reads it and the, prof, the suitors immediately deny. Say, so you have your prophecies, they don't mean anything to us. So over and over, they, they, they didn't listen to Mentes. They don't listen to Halis Thurnus. They're not going to listen to Mentor when Mentor comes along in a few minutes. They don't read very well. Um, page 46, Mentor comes and tells Telemachus that he will take him um, to Pylos. Now let me just do this briefly. I'm going to, instead of reading passages, because we're almost out of time, I want to take a few minutes here. In Pylos, um, when Telemachus and Pis um, when he arrives, he finds Nestor and his sons um, offering sacrifices to Poseidon. And um, everything they do is proper, it's pious, it's a pious family. The Pisistratus offers the first offering to Athena, who's in the form of mentor. Nobody knows it, she's, she's disguised as mentor. Um, he tell, Nestor tells Telemachus what happened at Troy the quarreling that went on on page 54 towards the bottom. Since not all were considerate nor righteous, therefore many of them found a bad way home. That is, they, they didn't properly honor the gods. They were too full of themselves in that victory, and they paid for it in their homecomings. Lots of them died. Um, page 56, a really important moment. Remember, Mentors really Athena disguised as and trying to help Telemachus. She's trying to help him grow up right now. Um, toward line 200. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to him in answer, O Nestor, son of Neleus, great glory, be kinds. It's all too true that he took revenge. Nestor's been telling him about um, Orestes, Agamemnon's son, killing his murderer. Remember, Zeus, that's, one of, that's the first thing we heard about humans from Zeus at the beginning of the story. That's how important it is. Agistos killed the king, Agamemnon, when he came home with the help of his wife. And the son killed his mother and 
the murder of his father. That great story, if you don't know that, is, is the Oresteia, the trilogy by Aeschylus, the great tragedian, the great tragic writer, the three books on that homecoming. So the great, the first drama is Sophocles and Aeschylus, and one of the first stories has to do with the Trojan War materials. Agamemnon coming home, his wife plotting his murder, and the son killing his mother to avenge the father's death. That's how grave the disorders are. So if Odysseus seems cautious when he comes home, it's to be remembered. Who can you trust? Agamemnon's wife killed him. So coming home means there are traps and treacheries waiting everywhere. Now this is one of the problems Telemachus faces as a boy because he has Orestes as a model. By the way, this is Hamlet. Shakespeare uses this in Hamlet. Hamlet has to take vengeance on his father, and he looks at, um, I can't remember the, the other hero's name, and he keeps chiding himself because he doesn't do what the other man did. Telemachus is inclined to berate himself, to beat himself up, because he, this other boy had this courage to kill this guy and even his mother, and he can't do anything. His suitors are taking over his home, and he's... He looks at himself like a wimp. He says, Nestor, it's all too true. He took revenge, and so the Achaeans will carry his glory far and wide, a theme for the singers to come. If only the gods would give me such strength as he had, as Orestes had, to take vent, to avenge the suitors for their overbearing oppression. They force their, their way upon me and recklessly plot against me. No, the gods have spun out no such strand of prosperity for me and my father. Now we must even have to endure it. Then Nestor says, dear friend, um, for the sake of your mother are in your palace. These suitors are there against their will. They're plotting evil. Tell me, um, who are the people who live about? Um, at the top of 57, if only gray-eyed Athena would deign to love you, as in those days she used to take care of glorious Odysseus in the Trojan country, whereas we a kind suffered miseries. For I never saw the gods showing such open affection as Pallas Athena did for him. Telemachus, oh, sir, I think what you have spoken will not be accomplished. What's the irony here? Is it obvious? She's, she's done that because she's mental. She brought him there. She's there. Yeah. She's right there. Right? Mm -hmm. Does he see it? Does Nestor see it? No. no. So Telemachus says, oh, it'll never happen. The gods will never do this for me. I mean, how often do we get negative assuming by something negative, that God will not be around helping us if we, I mean, if we had our head on or our heart in the right place, you know. So that's the irony. Now let me ask, it. she's there, she's helping him. He doesn't see it. Why doesn't she step forward and knock him on the head and say, fool, I'm here. Put your whining and stand up. Why doesn't she say that? She wants him to figure it out himself. Flesh that out. What would happen if she did? Step forward and. Does it make for a good story? You've got to have your main character work hard. Yeah. If she did it, like an enabling parent, would he ever learn to do it himself? He, if she stepped forward, wouldn't his inclination be to depend on her? She's the goddess of wisdom. Um, so what she's doing clearly means. 
it's for his own good, even if he, I mean, clearly doesn't see it. She doesn't step in. She doesn't enable. She doesn't protect him. She's, she wants him to grow. And she's there helping him, but not in a way that would make him dependent. So he leaves, I, I can't go on, he leaves, he goes to Sparta. When he comes to Sparta, Menelaus tells him the story of his adventures home. Menelaus is at sea for eight years, longer than anybody except Odysseus, and, and I think that's important. Helen comes out with drugs and says, take this, it'll help you forget your grief, because they're mourning about their losses. Nestor lost his son. Helen was unfaithful. While Menelaus was away, his brother was killed. Agamemnon was killed, and he grieves over it. So in both households, both households live in the past. Nestor is a man. And let me suggest some things here. In all the pages spent describing Nestor's home, take a look at this. Page 62 at the bottom. He describes all these events taking place, the adventures of Menelaus, um, the loss of his son. By the way, who is his son who's lost? Do you remember? It struck me like a dagger when I finally read Homer well. It was Antiochus. Who is he? He was involved in the chariot or the chariot race. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was Nestor's son. When we read the Odyssey, the first thing we hear about him, he died. The first time I remember when I made that connection, it just struck my heart. Here was this young kid who was full of bravery. The last thing we saw was this noble thing he did in the chariot race. We get to Nestor's home in Pylos, and the first thing we learn is he's one of the casualties of the war. So they're grieving. The interesting thing here, look at the bottom of this page, 62. And now the daughters and daughters-in-law of Nestor and his grave wife, Eurydice, eldest of the daughters of Clymenos, raise the outcry. The only thing we hear about his wife is while they're cutting up these sacrifices for Athena, because they saw Athena, Athena fly off, and Nestor wanted to honor her, so they're doing the sacrifices before he sends Telemachus off. They're making all these sacrifices. The wife comes out and puts up a cry while they're butchering it. They kill it. Telemachus goes to bed, and he goes off to Sparta. We hear nothing about his wife, nothing. He's a man who can do nothing but talk about himself. He was that way in the Iliad. If you go back and one day, if you ever read the Iliad, you'll find Nestor always talking about his exploits. Always. He, he lives in his accomplishments, what he did. Was he the teacher of Achilles? No. No, 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 no. no, no, no. Nestor is an old wise man. Oh, he's the older, yeah. the elder. He's the one who did the catalog of the ships at the, at the end of the quarrel, in the beginning. He's just, he doesn't make place for his wife, it seems to me. Here, when Telemachus um, arrives with Pisistratus, the guards come and say, should we let these people in? The first thing that happens in Sparta is they're guarded about people coming in. Why? because of what happened with Paris and Helen. It's a guarded household. Helen wants to use drugs to put away the memories of all the pain. She, she's 
She's glad she wanted to leave Paris. She makes that clear. She wanted to come home finally. She changed her mind. She's home. But she lives with the grief of what she did. Um, Menelaus is a wealthy man. He's, he's got nothing but homes and city. He was going to give Odysseus a city when he got home. So both people, both homes have some certain disorders. There's almost no place for the wife here with a husband who is so preoccupied with the past he makes room for nothing else. In Sparta, the wounds of the past still hold on to them. Could you answer a question for me? Why yeah. does it say Nestor and his brave wife? And I've seen that word brave, brave. several times before. Brave wife. What does that represent? I don't honestly I can't you answer. Don't know. My first my first thought is just that, that it's a great household. They, they carry this burden, but I, I don't want to make too much. What I what 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 I want to suggest is if you read the whole Nestor passage, the, the visit to Primus is all we get are stories about the war. Except for this moment when Athena flies off and then the wife shows up. There is no there's nothing going on between a man and a woman. They're living so much in the past here. And even though Menelaus and Helen are together here, the wounds of the past are so, so overbearing. He lives with a sense of her betrayals. She lives with a sense. I don't, think, I don't think they're overdone by them. They're together, and I think they're glad to be there. But the point is that in both homes, um, the past um, clouds everything that goes on. In Ithaca, the, the place is in disorder. It's racked by a hundred suitors. Um, the, the boys have grown up with no fathers. Telemachus has had no father. He begins the story by searching for his father. He wants to find out who his father is. So at the very outset of the book, what we've got are all these disorders. And in some sense, we have to say they're partly the effect of what happened at war. And the question is, what does homecoming mean? <coughs> For this figure that Homer calls Odysseus, when he will return to his wife, and the two are finally reunited at the end, how are we to understand that reunion, that marriage? What, 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 because clearly there's nothing but violence here. And if you know anything about the Odyssey, you know that at the end Odysseus is going to fight all the suitors. It's going to be nothing but bloodshed. So this is not like a, it's not like turning on television and getting this idyllic life of, Tom and Jane, or you know, you know, it's, it's. Um, there are real disorders. People are struggling from real wounds. The past is heavy. Um, they all, they all grieve losses. Um, so, what we're faced with at the opening of the Odyssey are all these disorders at home. What is Homer going to do with them? Where is he going? What will Telemachus learn? What will we learn from our? readings of Odysseus on his journey. Okay, that's where we're going. Remember that this is an easier read, but remember what I said, there's a whole metaphysical dimension. Odysseus is going to be dealing with all these mythic kind of figures, strange creatures. So either Homer was on drugs, yeah. Or he's trying to show us something here. There are those lotus eaters. Yeah, that's yes. right. <laughs> Who are still with us in growing numbers. <laughs>